on iBand Band. All right. Hello and welcome to the Dina Joe podcast. I am DJ Dina Joe, your friend, coming to you from the city, colorful Colorado. Thank you so much for joining the show today. You all are the best. If you're listening on the download, thank you and hit that button so you can join us live sometime. I'm here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, 7.45 a.m. Mountain Standard Time. And as always, I have the best people in the chat. Um, today, I'm things a little differently. As you know, see, uh, I'm starting a little earlier um, just so that at 7.46, we can do a moment of silence. Um, that is when the first uh, plane hit the towers. So um, I kind of wanted to do that. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, today is, of course, Motivational Monday, Patriots Day, 9-11, Remembrance, um, some motivational stories. I don't think we'll have any, be able to get into anything. And then uh, double play today um, for music. It's more late 60s, 70s music. So that'll be good. I just have to my alarm on so I don't forget. Um, so let's see if I can get this done um, before the alarm goes off. So today is Monday, September 11th. Um, and around the country, people pause to remember those who lost their lives on the anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, vowing to never forget. Um, on September 11th, almost 3,000 people lost their lives during the attack at the Twin Towers, Pentagon, and United Airlines Flight 93. At 8.46 a.m. Eastern, American Airlines Flight 11, traveling from Boston to Los Angeles, hit the World Trade Center in New York in what we now know as the 9-11 terror attacks. At 9.03 a.m. Eastern, United Airlines Flight 175, traveling from Boston to Los Angeles, hit the South Towers of the West Trade Center in New York City. At 9.37 a.m. Eastern, American Airlines Flight 77, traveling from Jules, Virginia to Los Angeles, hit the Pentagon Building in Washington. At 10.03 a.m. Eastern, Airlines Flight 93, Traveling from Newark, New Jersey to San Francisco, crashed in a field near Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Around the country, people paused to remember those who lost their lives on the anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, vowing to never forget. Welcome, Aisha. Welcome. Welcome, um, Wax XF. Good to have you. Um, we have about three more minutes, and then I'm going to do a moment of silence. Um, so let's see. Then I'm going to get into some stories. It is going to be tough to read, but I'm going to try to get through them. Um, I'll do a couple quotes before um, 746. Um, is, if we learn nothing else from this tragedy, we learn that life is short and there is no time for hate. And that is by Sandy Dowell, wife of flight 93 pilot Jason Dowell in Pennsylvania, 2002. She lost her husband. My older brother lived his life in Technicolor. When he walked in the door, the whole house lit up. And I'm sure heaven lit up when he got there. 
and not as Anthony's was made um, and at the World Trade Center site in 2005. That um, five years from the date of the attack that came to our world, we've come back to remember the valor of those we lost, those who innocently went to work that day, and the brave souls who went in after them. We also come to be even ever mindful of the courage of those who grieve for them and the light that still lives in their hearts. Not as I, New York City Mayor Rudolph Giuliani, at the World Trade Center. Um, one more minute. Um, this one quote What separates us from animals? What separates us from the. Alexa, turn off. Um, the, I had to put that alarm on. Um, what separates us from animals, what separates us from the chaos is the ability to mourn people that we've never met. And um, I think that that is uh, important and was kind of, you know, um, I'm all about. Hi, BP. Good to see you. Um, we're going to have a moment of silence at 7.40. Hi, Sheena. Good to see you. You're welcome. Okay, here we go. All right, thank you guys so much for that moment of silence. Um, these next stories are, uh, wow, they're gonna be really hard. Um, I never read these stories about the eight children who died on 9-11. So I'm gonna try my hardest to get through it. Um, I can tell you today, uh, reading them, I was just bawling because it's just, to read. I need somebody up here to help me read them. But um, yeah, of all the almost 3,000 people <clears throat> died uh, on 9-11 and covering uh, the three, I mean, the eight children, excuse me, um, is really quite uh, sad. So I'm going to just get through it. Let's see. I'm going to too loud and all right we're gonna start with um christine lee hansen she was two years old christine two years old when she headed onto united airlines flight 175 to boston oh damn it's already starting to california the youngest child to on september 11th attacks she was from um 
Overton, Massachusetts. Uh, Christine was said to be bright and a busy She was headed to Los Angeles with her parents, Peter, 32, and Sue Kim, Hanson, 32. They were taking her to her first trip to Disneyland. It was also her first trip on an airplane. Peter was able to call Christine's grandpa, World War II veteran Lee Hansen, a World War II veteran, to say goodbye on behalf of him and his family. Phew. David Gambano Grandshurst, um, who is three. And you guys, um, I'm not ignoring anybody that comes in. I'm just on a different screen, so I can't see everybody. So welcome, Mike. <clears throat> David Gambano Bransdard, years old, um, was traveling home to Los Angeles, California with his daddy, his poppy, after a fun visit with family in Cape Cod. Um, David loved Legos, his cousins, and attending weekly swim class, according to his aunt. He was a lover of vegetables as he even opted to eat cherry tomatoes over cake and ice cream at his cousin's birthday party. He was accompanied on Flight 175 with both his father, Daniel, um, both his fathers, Daniel Radhurst, 42, and Ronald Gambanio, 33. Julianne Valentine McCourt um, was four years old. Julianne Valentine McCourt was also aboard United Flight 175. Her mother, Ruth McCourt, was a model who immigrated to the U.S. from Ireland in 1973. Ruth married Julianne's father, David McCourt, in 1970. Julianne was traveling with Ruth on vacation from their home in New Newton, Massachusetts, to California. Ruth planned to divide their week between going to the Health Wellness Center and taking um, Julianne to Disneyland. McCord's brother, Ron Crawford, a software salesman, was in the North Towers when Flight 11 crashed. He managed only to witness Flight 175 crash into the South Towers. He didn't know at the time, but the plane had his little niece, Julianne, and sister Ruth inside. I think when I was on the floor saying the Lord's Prayer, when the second plane hit, just in a strange way, maybe Ruth guided me out of there, Clifford told in an interview. Ruth's best friend, Paige Barley Hath, was also on flight 11 to Los Angeles on the first plane to crash. The three had planned to meet in California, where Paige and Ruth prized Julianne with the trip to Disney. Bernard Curtis Brand um, II was 11 years old. He was one of the three brilliant students to be chosen by the National Geographic as one of three sixth-grade stu students in Washington, D.C. area to go on an education adventure to the Channel Islands Marine Dreary off the California coast. A middle school student were accompanied by the National Geographic Society employees on Flight 77, which crashed into the Pentagon. And yet another strange twist, Bernard's father happened to work at the Pentagon, who was out playing golf that day. Bernard was praised for his spelling and drawing. He was said to have a zest for living. 
According to his mother, Bernard uh, lived to go to school and loved basketball. During the same year, he was just purchased his pair of Air Jordans and was wearing the shoes as a child. His father said he was apprehensive about flying before the trip. The pair even talked about what could happen on the plane. Asia Kotem, 11. Asia Kotem was another student selected by National Geographic to go on the same educational trip. Asia's father, Clifford Kotem, said that she was a real charmer who was trying hard to grow up. Asia had a passion and a talent for science and math. She dreamed of becoming a pediatrician and enjoyed dancing and jumping rope on double Dutch style. Her mother, Michelle, says God has a much higher calling for her. He took a child that just loved him and had blind faith in him. Like most children believe in Santa, the child believed in God. He better to discover what he told I'm sorry. I don't. Are you guys there? Uh, I hope you're still there. I don't know what happened, but let's get back to this. Oh my goodness. Um, thank you. Oh, you can hear. You can hear me cussing. Ah, saying what now? Oh my goodness. Jeez. Let me get back to these stories. Ronnie Deacons, eleven. Ronnie was another of three children to um, go on the um, trip to California. The trip was Ronnie's first time on an airplane. Oh, the pictures of these kids, they're so young. The Washington Post reported that Ronnie was a smart kid, always making the honor roll, reading and liked playing computer games and playing with his four siblings. According to his aunt, Cynthia, his favorite thing in the world was to watch um, professional wrestling on TV. Aww. One of his classmates at Kitchum Elementary School said that Rodney was kind, a nice person who loved Pokemon, and he loved helping other people with their homework if they didn't understand it. Dana and Zoe Flackenberg. Um, Dana was three, Zoe was eight. Um, let's see. down just a little bit. I'm afraid to touch the wrong button. There we go. <clears throat> All right, so Dana and Zoe died on flight 77 with their parents. Old former NASA engineer Charles Flankenberg and 45-year-old economics professor Leslie Weltington. Zoe was said to be a top student in her school, University Park Elementary School in University Park, Maryland. She was an attractive young girl who invo was involved in Girl Scouts, loved ballet, and was a devoted Harry Potter um, was devoted to Harry Potter books. 
and participated as a member of her school's swim team. Dana was an adorable, curly-haired child. Family and friends uh, said that she was born a bit later in her parents' life, was seen as a miracle child. Dana um, also loved nursery school and was an inspiring swimmer like her sister taking swimming lessons at the local YMCA. The family was on their first leg of a trip to Australia where the girl's mother would participate, was participating in a semester-long research fellowship at the Australian National University of Canberra for two months. Family missed their original connecting flight, so they boarded um, among American Airlines Flight 77 in DC. Um, the girls had an impressive stuffed animal collection, and most of them had been um, consigned to storage in anticipation for the family's um, stay abroad. So, uh, those are the um, eight children who were lost on 9-11. So I'm going to play It's called September's Children. Hi, Oz. Thank you all for coming back <laughs> while well, staying. September's cheering on my mind Thousands of good souls taken away There ain't no reason in your mind We all know things will never be the same Now we're finding out outside No one can tell you how to live. 
That's the spores, spores on September children. Um, uh, what? It's fading. You may have to touch too high. What happened to you? I kind of just went away. I don't know what's going on. Um, let's see. I have some more uh, quotes and stories. I'm hopefully. This one is um, from Catherine Hernandez at the World Trade Center. My father, Niberto, was a pastry chef at the window of World Tower One. For 10 years, he made fancy and famous desserts. The greatest desserts he made was the marble cake he made for us at home. Whenever we parted, Poppy would say, Ti amo vai con And this morning, I want to say the same thing to you. Poppy, I love you. Oh, goodness. Um, on this day, 19 um, years, September, um, um, well, that's when this was written, 246 people went to sleep in preparation for the morning flight. 3,606 people went to sleep in preparation for work in the morning. 343 firefighters went to sleep in preparation for their morning shift. 60 police officers went to sleep in preparation for their morning patrol. Eight paramedics went to sleep in preparation for their morning shift. None of them saw past 10 a.m. on September 11, 2001. In one single moment, life may be the same. As you live and enjoy the breaths you take today and tonight, before you go to sleep in preparation for tomorrow, life tomorrow, kiss the ones you love, snuggle a little tighter, and never, never take a second of your life for granted. So, um, and that is uh, unknown who wrote that. Um, this is my Stanley Paramount, who was a survivor of 9-11. I still have the shoes I wore to work that day. The soles are melted and they are cracked, caked with ash. I keep them in a shoebox with the word deliverance written all around. They're kind of like an ark, a reminder of God's presence and life I owe to him. This is by another survivor, Michael. Things 
person. I may never know the answers to the question that plagued me after 9-11, but I know if we lean on God and each other, we will be guided to a better, brighter future. This one is by Mary McPherson, um, who lost her father. Um, my father was the best person I've ever known. And though he was taken from me on that day, nothing and no one will ever be able to take away the eight years and two days of my life that I shared with him. After my father died, and after I lost so much, I promised myself that I would never lose who I am as a person. The person that my father brought back to me. If you owe someone an apology, tell them you're sorry today. If someone asks for your forgiveness, forgive them. Start being the person you always wanted to be today. And don't waste time worrying about tomorrow. Um, <clears throat> this is another survivor. Why am I here? What is the reason why we saved? They're really, really unanswerable questions. After going through something like we did, all we can do is try to live the best life from day to day and move forward with gratitude. So, um, yeah, <laughs> those are hard to read. Welcome, everybody. Uh, on, I appreciate you being here. Uh, those are very hard. I hope that you listen to some of those words and love the people that are around you and like that one quote hug them a little bit tighter uh let people know that you appreciate them let people know that you love them because you never know you never know when the next it'll be the last time you see them you know we are all here on this platform and uh, you know a lot of us have been with each other for quite a time and we are like family to each other and that's why i try to tell you you know every time how much i appreciate you guys because i truly do um after my mom you realize and other but my mom really you realize how short life is so yeah just love the people that are around you and we're gonna move on now <laughs> i'm gonna move on to um the word of the day the quick day and all that good stuff. <laughs> so, to the word of the day that I have, I apologize. Here. I hate that what happens. All right. So, Apologizing is simply justifying that they are right and that you do not capture either. That is one of the hardest ones for me because, um, yeah, I'm sorry, but I'm sorry, but it's just an excuse. Two things I can't stand most are liars and people who do not know how to apologize when they are wrong. Alright, so I was watching this show and there was this girl who, um, whatever reason, I don't know, I wasn't watching the whole thing, um, 
she got pissed off and told off this girl. And so she felt bad afterwards and she decided to sat down and was talking to her father. And he was from Greece. And so he was explaining to her that the greatest word in the English language is apologize. One of the words. That the person who is able to apologize is the stronger person. And why is it so difficult? Or do they just not care about you and your relationship? Who um, can't admit? The ones who can never admit that they've missed no matter what purpose. What makes them incapable of apologizing even when they're obviously in the wrong? When they double down their wrongness by blaming circumstances, denying the facts, or attacking the other person involved, Non-apologizers can make themselves feel empowered rather than admit The mistake we often make when faced with someone who's habitually incapable of apologizing is to become irate, and for good reason, of course, and try to win the argument with them because we're right. But the sad and frustrating reality is we will never win with them. Their egos are too big. Even if we demonstrate that they were wrong in stark, inarguable facts, they will either deny those inarguable facts or pivot to a personal attack by saying something like, why do you always do this or do that? The bottom line is we all have moments when we refuse to admit we're wrong, we're humans. But when someone never takes responsibility, truly incapable of apologizing, it's a sign that they, they have a big ego, maybe lying uh, in the narcissistic human, and unless you want to be continually hurt, learn to put up some boundaries, or if you need to, cut that person off. People who can't apologize appear to be tough individuals who refuse to back down, but they don't do this because they're strong, it's because they're weak as big humans. Real healthy people know when it's time to apologize or acknowledge their fault. People who cannot apologize deliver faux apologies, which you literally revert blame back on to the victim. Because some never admit fault or have people hold them accountable to their actions. In fact, more often than not, this is a pattern. Their egos are usually 100 times the size they should be. A doctor by the name of, his name is Dr. God. Out of such people, some people have such fragile egos, egos, such brittle, brittle self-esteem, such a weak psychological constitution that admitting they made a mistake or that they were wrong is fundamentally too threatening for their big fat egos to take. A healthy, normal, functioning human being accepts their roles in a situation and uses them as a lesson for the future. So let's just say you um, are not a narcissist, but you still have a hard time when it comes to apologizing. Um, try to remember, a meaning apologies, apology is one that communicates three things, regret, responsibility and remedy. To feel true regret, we need to have 
for the person we have harmed. If you do not have empathy, your apology will sound and feel empty. The meaning, this means not blaming anyone or anything else for what you did and making excuses for your actions, period. Own up to it. An apology is a powerful interaction that has an almost magical ability to provide healing for both the offended and the offender. Let's not squander the opportunities to heal, grow, and change our lives and the lives of others for the better by using, um, refusing to admit our wrongs or by giving half-hearted or insulting apologies. So I know you got this. I believe in you. You got this. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I am not Oh, yay. I was just like, I'm not using it. And now it's been wonderful. I'm so happy. I was like, what am I going to do? All right. So I'm um, this morning emotional one with these stories. Um, so I wanted to um, play this, uh, you know, it's Monday, so I always try to have a motivational story. And I came across um, this one where um, a hero neighbor charges into a lake to save a four-year-old um her four-year-old neighbor who has autism and you know autism is close to my heart so let's i'm going to play this video of course you're not going to be able to see it but you're going to be able to hear the interview um this woman is drenched my like shoes are sopping wet what happened jessica bauer just saved her neighbor from drowning i think i saved a little kid's life today the youngster, who is autistic, can be seen on a ring camera heading right into the lake. His grandmother, who was babysitting, screams. He's in the water! Without hesitation, Jessica tosses her phone and jumps right in. I just threw, threw my phone and ran in, and I'm not a good swimmer. <laughs> All I can do is doggy paddle. Yet you jumped into the water to save this child's life, potentially risking your own. Yeah, I... I really not think much into it. I'm so scared. I have a three-year-old. The little boy's mom thanked her hero. Literally an angel from above, especially for being at the right place at the time. Drowning is the leading cause of death among autistic children, but not on this day, thanks to this brave woman. <laughs> I love that story. And you could just see, I mean, the little boy, he's just walking by this water and he falls in. He didn't like jump into the, he just falls in and thank God that she was there. But that is a good story. Um, we have there, um, another story I found, um, this one is, it just makes me happy because I'm a dog lover. I'm an animal lover period. But, um, dogs yeah it says determined dog escapes shelter three times um and picks an odd forever home um and it says that nothing too exciting happens at the relatively calm meadow brooks medical care facility a nursing home in bel air michigan that cares for seniors with terminally ill illnesses and dementia but despite that a stray dog decided that was the place he wanted to make his forever home scout an abused pup who escaped not once not twice but three times from the antrim county 
control shelter not far from the nursing home first showed up at the long-term facility in 2017. He climbed over two fences, um, went through a busy thoroughway um, in the dead of night, and um, went through the nursing home's automatic doors, walking unnoticed into the lobby, hopped up on a couch, and curled into a ball and fell asleep. When an astonished staffer discovered Scout the next day, the local sheriffs retrieved him and brought him back to the shelter. But over the next next week or so, Scout made his way back to the nursing home two more times. At that point, the staffer had decided to make um, a decision to make. The decision was to keep the friendly pooch who in the years since has become a beloved companion to the seniors who live there. I think it reminds them of being home, one worker says of the residents, who are delighted to welcome Scout into the mix. The dog wanders the halls at will, lies down where he wishes, and visits residents whenever the mood strikes him. Um, Scout has even learned how to gain entry into the room of residents who keep tasty biscuits waiting for him. Um, He's a jailbreaker, Marlene Robinson, um, a facility administrator, said in an interview. He can open doors and get out fences. He's a very intelligent dog. Um, He does not like loud noises, though, but he walks still has a slight hint of a um, cower, it says. And he notices if if there's anybody new, like uh, um, visitors or somebody that doesn't belong there, he keeps the residents safe. So I thought that was a good story because I know, I do, Sean, how... Um, how much you know especially my my dog boo that i lost a little over a year ago he was more of my um therapy dog if you would say you know when i was in pain and and trying to get through the pain he was the one that was always like up on my lap licking my tears and all that stuff billy just wants to play frisbee but he still loves me and i still love him but you know animals can do that they can help so much i think with um individual anybody but i can see how this dog scout um could be helpful at this nursing home I think that's a great story. So, um, yeah, we already did all the stories, the 911 stories. I have tears all over my face. So, yeah, it was a tough morning. Um, let me see. And then there was another story that I found. And um, it says this president, I'm trying to remember where this country, where he is from. Um, it says the president leads by example. Oh, North Macedonia. Um, last year, students at the school in Gavisvar, North Macedonia, received quite a surprise when the county's countries, excuse me, country's leader showed up just before roll call. After President Stevo Benzarski found out that 11-year-old Embla Adami with Down syndrome was being teased by her classmates and isolated from other children by teachers, he took matters into his own hands. The president took office in 2019, visited the family before school, um, offered Amanda some gifts, and then walked with her at times holding hand, hands um, all the way to school. 
in a country where more than half of the people believe that children with disabilities cannot be fully integrated into society, and 81% believe that children with disabilities should be segregated into schools, the President's Act was significant. Oh my gosh, this is the 20th century, and I can't even imagine if I was there with Aaron during this time, you know, and people still not that that's just god we've come a long way um here so um Penarowski's office issued a statement that said children with atypical development should not only enjoy the rights they deserve but also feel equal and welcome at their school desks and then at the school yard it is our obligation as a state but also as individuals. And the key element is this common mission is empathy. Um, bravo. Plot him. So, um, yeah, we need to be more empathetic. Uh, if you have ever been around anybody with Down syndrome or anybody that has a disability, my gosh, they have so much to teach us. They have so much more empathy than um, a lot of us do. So uh, yeah, those are the good stories that I have for you today. I didn't do a joke of the day or anything like that. I will come back on Wednesdays, the fun day. We'll get out of, um, you know, today's a day of remembering. But we were we will get into music, which I'm going to start a little bit early. Um, Double Play Monday. It's kind of early 60s, some of it, some of it 70s. Oh, my glasses are so messed up from the tears. <laughs> After I read this, I got to clean my glasses. All right. So the first song that I have for you today is um, the first two songs are going to be the Eagles. Um, first one, Take It Easy. Second one, Life in the Fast Lane. So a little bit about Take It Easy. Um, Jackson Brown started writing Take It Easy for his first album but he didn't know how to finish it. At the time, he was living in an apartment in of Los Angeles and his upstairs neighbor was Glenn Fry, who needed songs for his new band, The Eagles. Fry heard Brown um, working on the song. He says that he learned a lot about songwriting by listening to his downstairs neighbor work and told Jackson he thought it was great. Brown said he was having trouble completing the track and played what he had of it. When he got the second verse, um, Fry came up with the key lyrics, it's a girl, my Lord, and a fat bed for slowing down to take a look at me. Brown turned the song over to Frey, who finished writing it and recorded it with the Eagles, who used it as the first song from their first album and also the first single. Frey says Brown did most of the work on the song and was very generous in sharing the writing credits. He described the unfinished version of the song as packaged without a ribbon. So here is the Eagles with Told me once and she's a friend of mine. Take it easy, take it easy. 
Don't let the sound of your own wheels drive you crazy. Lighten up while you still can. Don't Thank you, Mike. Thank you, BP. Just find a place to stand. Take it easy. I'm standing on the corner in Windsor, Arizona. It's such a fine sight to see. It's a girl, my lord, in a flat bed for sewing down to take a look at me. Come on, baby. Don't say baby. I've got to know if your sweet love is going to save me. We may lose and we may win, but we will never be here again. Open up, I'm climbing in, so take it easy. So that is the first song by the Eagles. Take it easy. <clears throat> I'm going to have a little bit about life in the slang. The song describes a man and a woman who have everything but lost it. Wait a minute. Let me start over. This song describes a man and woman who had everything but lost it because of their lifestyle. All right. Hotel California was the Eagles' first album when their new guitarist, Joe, who helped write the song with Don Henley and Glenn Fry. In a 1981 interview, um, Frey explained life on the fast lane um, kind of expressed the stereotyped L.A. run around in your Porsche 24-hour boogie mode that unfortunately is too true for a lot of people. It wasn't really a statement about the guys in the band or about anybody in particular. Just it's kind of disturbing to see the extremes that the Socialistic jet set will involve themselves in. I think I said that right. For instance, disco almost turned into a lifestyle, and it's such a non-meaning on which to base one's life, he said. Whoa, okay. When reminded that the Eagles bandmates may have exhibited some symptoms described in the song, Joe replied, yeah, that's probably true. And I think it's, it was healthy, though, that we realized that running around and partying in fast cars are really not the answer. It's kind of a shallow way of approach while we're on this planet. And it's probably came as the band's consciousness. So here they are, the Eagles with the second song, Life in the Fast. Lane. 
Welcome at KJUZECC. Yes, I did. Thank you. I appreciate being here. song by the Eagles, Life in the Fast Lane, off the Hotel California album. We're going to um, get on to the next double play, and it's um, Electric Light Aura, or ELO, <laughs> whichever one you want to go by. The first song is Evil Woman. Um, this song was recorded at Musicland Studios in Murich, Ger um, Germany, sometime in the early 1975. Um, Jeff Lynn wrote the song on piano in the studio on the last day of recording. 
writing it very quickly. The band's recording for all of the other songs for Face the Music album have been completed when Jeff needed another song. One morning while the rest of the band were out, he sat at the piano and played the opening piano riff, which became the basis of the song. Later, later that same day, the rest of the band came in and recorded the back track. The lyrics were written and recorded the next day in Music Lamb. The string and female chorus parts were recorded and um, possibly later at De La Lee Studios in Wembley, UK. So here is Electric Light Orchestra, Evil Woman. song evil woman um they always had like we're into ufo like kind of things seemed like <laughs> um the second song don't bring me down elo's leader jofflin wrote this song late in the sessions for the discovery album he came up with the track by looping drums from a song he recorded earlier in the session then coming up with more music on the piano, the words came last as Lynn put together some lyrics about a girl who thinks she's too good for the guy she's with. As a little joke, Lynn put a count in at the beginning of the song, 
even though there was nobody he needed to count in. This was the first ELO song that didn't use any strings. After recording it, they fired their string section, leaving only four members in the band. So here is the second song, ELO, Don't Bring Me Down. Thank you, Ashia. saying Bruce right there Bruce This one says gross. This one in the lyric says gross. On this one, it's saying Bruce. <laughs> Don't bring me meow. <laughs> no, on this one, it has the lyrics that keep saying Bruce. And then I just Google the lyrics and it says gross instead of Bruce. This is gross. Who knows what the real words are? It does sound like Bruce. <laughs> Don't bring me down, Bruce. I like this part. You looking good just like a snake in the grass. Although a snake in the grass is not a good thing. That is Electric Light Orchestra. Don't bring me down, Bruce, or gross, whatever word it is, off the album Discovery, 1979. All right, we're going to move on to the next artist, which is um, Elton John. Um, the next two songs, Benny and the Jets and The Bitch. All right. Um, so Benny and the Jets. Um, Elton wrote the music to this song as a homage to glam rock, a style defined by outrageous costumes that was um, popular in the early 70s, especially in the UK. Artists like David Bowie and Gary Glitter got into the act, but for Elton, it was an extension of his personality. He really was gay and liked to wear feminine clothes on stage. 
He became known for his wild appearance and collection of gaudy sunglasses. It was Elton's idea to stutter the vocal Banny. Tablin thought that this worked very well for the futuristic robotic theme of the lyrics. Said Tappan, that's a little quirk of the song, which I'm sad to say I had nothing to do with. That and um that and that wonderful big the beginning. I think those two things are what probably made the song so popular, neither of which I had anything to do with. So here is Elton John with Benny and the Jets. Yeah, I like Bruce better, BP. <laughs> Who the heck is Bruce? She's got a 
That is Benny and the Jets. Elton John off the album Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, 1973. All right. Now about the song The Bitch is Back. Um, Elton is the bitch. <laughs> One day he was in a foul mood complaining about everything and anything. Bernie Tabin's wife, Maxine, saw him and said, uh-oh, the bitch is back. And Bernie Tabin, who is Elton's lyricist, thought it was a great phrase. He wrote the lyrics around it and Elton put it to music. Um, this was the first hit song with the word bitch in the title, which was rather risque in 1974. Many radio stations refused to play it when it was released. But when it um, became a hit, most relented and added it to their playlist. A few stations um, tried editing out the word bitch, but it appears 42 times in the song. And the censored version sounded a bit um, ludicrous. So um, here is... The pitch is back.
Uh, that is Elton John with um, The Bitch is Back off the album Caribou in 1974. All right, we're going to get on into a little Queen, two songs by them. Um, the first song is going to be Bicycle Race, and uh, the second one is Fat Bottom. I guess they um, normally play them together, so that is what we are going to do. So Bicycle Race, um, I guess I'll tell you both about them both and then play them together. Freddie Mercury wrote this in France after watching the Tour de France bicycle race ride by his hotel. The band were recording jazz in the French countryside, mainly as a tax break. Roger Taylor claimed in the Days of Our Lives documentary that they were being taxed as much as 98% royalties on previous albums. Damn. Um, hence why they deflected to France and later to Monarch, um, Switzerland to record future albums. Well, um, whatever Queen played, um, bicycle shops would sell out of bells um, bought by the fans who would bring them to the show and ring them during this song. Um, all right, so a little bit about the song Fat Bottom Girls. Queen's guitarist Brian May wrote this song, which is about a young man who comes to appreciate woman substantial girth. In an interview, May said, I wrote it with Fred in mind, as you do, especially if you're a great singer who likes fat bottom girls. Or boys, he says. This is released as a double A side of the single bicycle race. The together on the and were often played that way by radio stations. Each song has a reference to the other in its lyrics. In bicycle race, a lyric runs, fat bottom girls, they'll ride today, so look out for those beauties. Oh yeah. In fat bottom girls, the closing call shouts, get on your bikes and ride linking the two songs together. So here they are, the first one, Bicycle Race, second one, Fat Bottom Girls, Queen. I want to ride my bicycle, bicycle, bicycle. I want to ride my bicycle. I want to ride my bicycle. I want to ride my bicycle. I want to ride it where I like. Say black, I say white, say bar, I say bite, say shark, I say him and George was never my scene, and I don't like Star Wars. Say Rome, I say Royce, say God, give me a choice. Say Lord, I say I don't believe in Peter Pan, Frankenstein, or Superman. No, I haven't seen it, BP.
He's going to go into Fat Bottom Girls soon. 12 seconds. All the likes they appreciate it so much The second song by Queen off the album Jazz in 1978. All right, I'm going to move on to the next band for two first, and it's going to be the Guess Who. The first song is No Time, and the second one is No Sugar Tonight. Um, I love the story behind that song. So the first song, No Time, um, this song is, <clears throat> excuse me, the song is about moving on and finding your true calling was written by Guess Who's guitarist Randy Bachman and lead singer Burton Cummings. In an interview, Bachman explained that musically the song was inspired by two tracks on the Buffalo Springfield album, Rock and Roll Woman, Hung Upside Down. Neil Young of Buffalo Springfield, a fellow Canadian, played and um, the album for Cummings and Bachman when he, his travels took him to Winnipeg. 
Um, they then heard it. They loved the country rock sound and set out to write something like it. That was our country rock song, Bachman said. Me and Burton trying to be like Neil and Stephen Still. According to Randy Bachman, the guitar's lick on the song is an inversion um, in, in of what Stephen Stills played on the Buffalo Springfield track, Hung Upside Down. When Bachman heard the theme song to the TV show, Law and Order, um, it sounded familiar. It's the same riff Bachman told um, in an interview. It's just recycling the riff in a different context. So here is the song, No Time, The Guess Who. So that is the guest who with no time and that's off American woman album in 1970. Um, it ranked number five in the U S and number one in Canada. We're going to go on to, um, the second song by them. No sugar tonight. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about that song. <laughs> John Pesho, who knew Randy Bachman and worked security for his band Bachman Turner overdrive gave an account um, of how this song came together. Randy told me that the inspiration for writing No Sugar Tonight came to him from an experience he had while walking in downtown Berkeley, California. Randy was walking and talking with a bandmate when he looked up and saw four big biker guys walking on the same side of the sidewalk approaching him. 
uh, Randy made up his mind to cross the street rather than confront the bikers. Then he heard a skidding of a car tire. Just as Randy was stepping off the sidewalk, the car came to a skidding stop and a biker lady got out of the car, walked over to one of the bikers and engaged in a heated conversation with him. When the argument ended, the biker lady walked back to the car, opened the door, turned around and shouted the biker, one more thing, honey, you're not getting any sugar tonight, indicating that um, he wasn't going to get any sex from her. <laughs> All right. The car took off and Randy crossed the street, went back to his hotel and started writing the song based on the experience. So here it is. No sugar tonight. The guess who? making kool-aid and you put like two cups of sugar in it when we were kids oh my gosh Guess who? No sugar tonight. <laughs> I'm gonna cut them off so I can play the last two songs. Hey, Billy D, how are you? Um, I'm gonna do um three dog night. 
on two songs by Three Dog Night. Um, let's see. The first one is Shambhala. And the second one is Mama Told Me. So about Shambhala, the word Shambhala has a spiritual meaning in the Buddhist religion. And some Tibetan Buddhists believe that it's a magical land hidden somewhere in the Himalayan mountains. The songwriter Daniel Moore um, said... In 1972, my brother Matthew called me and informed me that he had received a letter from Dorothy Pegg of Lake Pleasant, Massachusetts, that told him where um, and told him where and who he had been in the past lives. He had sent a letter to her requesting this information. After recounting several past lives, the letter ended with, My message tells me to you, let shine in the halls of Shambhala. In the phone conversation at that point, um, Michael said, Shambhala, what the hell is that? <laughs> okay. So I did some research and found out dozens of references to the word Shambhala, the 5,000-year-old word originating from scan Sanskrit. Some um, were weird, some were goofy, but the one that he liked um, was found in Alice Bailey's testes on white magic. It basically says that there was a giant cavern under the Gobi Desert that had a replica of every evolving human being. And when the replica begins to light up or glow, meaning you are cleaning up your act and becoming more spiritual minded or raising your consciousness to a higher level, there is a point where your replica gets bright enough to warrant a spiritual teacher being sent to you. All right, that was a lot of information. Anyway, here's Three Dog Night with Shambhala. Hi, Linus, welcome. Welcome. Oh, well, goodbye. <laughs> that is exactly what, and I stub my toe all the damn time. Shamalala, that's what I say. nice if there was a Shambhala where the world was nice and everybody was kind.
Okay, that's three dogs. Night. Shambhala of the Elm Clown in 1973. All right, we're going to move on to the second song by Three Dogs Night. And the last song, Mama Told Me uh, Not to Come. This was written by Randy Newman, the nephew of Academy Award winning composer Lionel Newman. The song is about a party that left in the writer's mouth. The drug scene was fairly new to America, American middle-class youth at the time. Randy Newman explained in a 2017 interview, um, it's a guy going to a party and he's a little scared. The first line, you have whiskey with your water or sugar with your tea, was a vague connection to acid. I don't remember being thrown off by the stuff then. It was that unsophisticated, which it was, I wouldn't have admitted it. So here is Three Dogs Night, Mama Told Me. Yes. What's all this crazy question they're asking me? This is the craziest party that could ever be. Turn on the lights, because I want to see. Yes, just like Kokomo. Well said, Billy D. And La La Land, yes, all of those. I was back in the days when everybody smoked. You went to a party and it was just like a cloud of smoke. Mama told me not to come. Three dogs night. Yes. All right. Well, it started off as an emotional show, and I appreciate you guys sticking through um, my tears and telling the story, especially of those um, young kids. They ate that parish um, in 2001 on this day. So just like I said, and a lot of the quotes said um, to a victims, um, if people who lost loved ones, to love the people around you, appreciate the people around you. If you need to say for ask forgiveness for somebody and apologize, um, then do it. Uh, um, life is way, way too damn short for um, us to not love one another. So 
that's what I have to say. And <clears throat> if my um, sound effect is here today, then I'm going to leave you like I always leave you. See, <laughs> it's here. It was. Be the reason someone smiles today. Let your smile change the world, but don't let the world and all the circumstances in it change your smile. And again, if nobody's told you lately, you are loved and I do love you and appreciate you more than anything. I promise. <laughs> uh, I do love you, Billy D. You know that. <laughs> you know it. Um, um, so you guys be safe out there. That is loud. Um, I'll be back on Monday. We're doing the soundtrack to Pulp Fiction. Um, and then uh, the other one that's coming up after that is um, Almost Famous. So I will see you guys on Wednesday. Wednesday fun day. We'll have fun. Love you. Bye.